Good afternoon and welcome to our policy forum with good intentions, U.S. foreign policy and humanitarian intervention. I'm Ted Galen Carpenter, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Defending the important security interests of the United States is not terribly controversial, except for hardcore pacifists. I think it's fair to say that virtually every American favors military intervention for that purpose. However, there is another category, and that is when humanitarian tragedies take place in the world that do not have a direct connection to America's own security interests. To what extent, if any, does the United States have an obligation to intervene militarily in those instances? And if it does have an obligation, under what conditions should the United States intervene? As well, how can the United States avoid getting caught up in unintended consequences from such a military intervention? After all, I think it's safe to say that there is no such thing as a neutral intervention. That whenever the United States intervenes in another country for humanitarian purposes or any other reason, that intervention works to the advantage of some factions in that country and works to the disadvantage of others. Again, how do we avoid getting caught up in the turmoil in the aftermath of a humanitarian intervention? We have an extremely knowledgeable panel to address those and other matters. I'm going to introduce uh, the speakers in the order that they will appear. Our first speaker will be David Reif, who's the author of a number of books and articles, including Slaughterhouse, Bosnia, and the Failure of the West, with Roy Gutman, Crimes of War, What the Public Should Know, and his most recent book, At the Point of a Gun, Democratic Dreams and Armed Intervention. That was published last year by Simon & Schuster and is due out in paperback this summer. He is a fellow at the New York Institute for Humanities at New York University and a contributing editor for the New York Times Magazine, deputy editor for the World Policy Journal, and a contributing editor for the New Republic. He is also a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute at the New School, a member of the Council for, on Foreign Relations, and serves on the board of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch. He is a frequent contributor to uh, so many of the major uh, publications in the United States, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Atlantic Monthly Foreign Affairs, and many other publications. Our second speech speaker is uh, Charles Kupchin, who is Professor of International Affairs at the School of Foreign Service and Government Department at Georgetown University. He's also a senior fellow and director of European Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Charlie was director uh, for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the first Clinton administration. Before joining the NSC, he worked in the U.S. Department of State on the policy planning staff. He is the author of The End of the America Era, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century, Power in Transition, the Peaceful Change of International Order, Civic Engagement in the Atlantic Community, and many other books. He's also published numerous articles on international and strategic affairs in 
a variety of publications. Nicholas Vozdev is the editor of the National Interest and a senior fellow in strategic studies at the Nixon Center. He is a frequent commenter on U.S.-Russian relations, Russian and Eurasian affairs, general aspects of U.S. foreign policy, and developments in the Middle East. He received his doctorate uh, degree from Oxford University, where he was also a Rhodes Scholar, and he is the author or editor of several books, including the co-author of The Receding Shadow of the Prophet, The Rise and Fall of Radical Political Islam, and an edited volume, Russia in the National Interest. Our final speaker is my colleague here at the Cato Institute, Christopher Preble, who is Director of Foreign Policy Studies. He chaired the Cato Task Force that produced the report, Exiting Iraq, Why the United States Must End the Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda, which was published in June of 2004 and looks better and better with the passage of time. <laughs> He's also the author of an important historical work, John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, as someone who also has a PhD in history, I especially uh, I'm pleased uh, when someone produces a first-class work of history, and he has done that. His articles have appeared in major publications such as USA Today, The Financial Times, The Asian Wall Street Journal, Political Science Quarterly, The National Interest, and many other publications. Before joining Cato in February of 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud University and Temple University. He was also uh, a uh, veteran. He's a was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and a veteran of the first Persian Gulf War, having served aboard the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 93. He holds a doctorate degree in history from Temple University. So, David, if you will start us off. I'll speak from here. Well, thank you, first of all, thank Cato for inviting me. Uh, it's the first time for everything. Um, the, I, I think uh, when we're talking about human rights or humanitarian intervention, and I, I rather think most of the time uh, we're talking about the former rather than the latter, we are... Um, we're, we're talking what, what we have in our minds the, the sort of vernacular idea the thing that, that excites people's interest is the idea that it's an altruistic act that it's not largely speaking the distinction if you will between humanitarian interventions to use the term and interventions of the kind that Ted Carpenter just described are interests the humanitarian or human rights uh, intervention is supposedly for your values, not your interests, to use Tony Blair's formulation at the, in the Chicago speech before the uh, Iraq invasion. Um, obviously, that's not what really happens. Obviously, even, even what seem to be purely humanitarian interventions have either some kind of corollary, either in direct interest or in political interest, in the domestic sense that say there's pressure. There was elite pressure for, uh, to use an intervention that I very much supported and 
tried to provoke, uh, there was considerable pressure among elite opinion for an intervention in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, in the early 90s. Um, so, obviously, you're never going to have a pure version of, of this altruistic intervention. But if you're trying to describe, if you're trying to outline sort of what, what, what's, it, what's at issue, that might be one way of dividing it. You don't have a problem uh, in principle justifying national interest interventions, as, as Ted Carpenter says, but I want to uh, sort of challenge the, the outline I've just given you in the following way, because I think it's the altruism versus interest um, distinction is a place to start, but it's not a place to end. Because the next step is, how do you secure, you'll forgive, particularly in these hallowed halls, the, the reference to Antonio Gramsci, but um, how, how do you con secure consent for such an act? After all, you're sending your soldiers to kill and to die uh, for something that, in principle, is... Um, even in the national interest, not necessarily obvious. The wars of interest that we've fought, let's say in those wars we would say the Gulf War in 91, uh, the Afghan War and the current um, disaster in Iraq, um, we, a case can be made in all three wars that it was a war of national interest. But what's interesting to me is the extent to which even these wars have had, seemed to uh, require humanitarian justifications, such is the prestige of humanitarian motivation at this point. So you actually got President Bush in the Afghan war, the one war I think probably even in this hall most people would agree was justified. Uh, the, uh, you, you had President Bush talking about a war in effect to secure the rights of women. Now. That's not the customary definition of a war of interest, or for that matter, a retaliatory strike against people who'd attacked us. Now, I'm not saying that was the principal justification, but I am insisting that, by and large, some kind of moral warrant seems to be needed for wars at this point. There seems, again, there have been other periods in history where that's been necessary, just as there have been periods when war could be expressed in purely realist terms, in terms of basically of interest. That this is a period when we need to feel really God is with us, to quote the German belt buckle of the 1914-18 war. Um, we need to feel, and the God in question is human rights, I would argue. Uh, because human rights, to a very considerable extent, has become the moral warrant for the neoliberal globalization project to which most people in the developed world are committed in one form or another. There's no consensus about religion. This is a very religious country. The other, member, the other major countries in the developed world are not religious. Japan, uh, the United Kingdom, Germany, etc. So there's no consensus on that. Uh, Systems vary. But the one thing, whether it's the European Union or Washington, that everyone can agree on, along with uh, free markets, is, um, is human rights. And so it, yeah, I think it's become very difficult even to have wars of interest unless you have some of that um, 
warrant before you. Now, obviously, one of the results of that is it radically confuses what war is and what, above all, to use the military term, what the end state of any given war is. Because the, the end state is not the battlefield success. It's the nation-building bit. Once you're in the situation where what you're doing is doing human rights, nation-building, etc. You have, uh, uh, if you like, you could describe the Iraq War, you know, which I, 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 I certainly opposed from before its inception, but, but in fairness, you could say if the end state had been the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, it was brilliantly done. The third ID went up the road and Baghdad fell. It's only if you think that the third ID should have done the so-called phase four stuff, that is restore order, put Iraq back together, that you say it's a failure. Uh, those are the situ that's the sort of condition of war. So in a sense, just as um, I think it was Walter Pater who said, all art aspires to the condition of music, in a certain sense, wars waged by developed countries all aspire on a certain level to humanitarian intervention, which I actually don't think is a very good thing for thinking about either um, humanitarianism or war. I think it gets you in the kind of trouble we're in now, which is moralizing what probably shouldn't be moralized and also seeming quite transparent. I, I'll, leave, I'll, I'll, I'll stop, but the one point I want to make is that in the 90s, it was at least possible for advocates of humanitarian and human rights interventions to describe a situation in which the problem was getting Brussels or Washington or London or Paris or Berlin to act. This was the real problem. It was a, it was a problem of will, problem of our will. Slow the late and unlamented Mr. Milosevic, even in Serbia not very lamented. Um, the uh, late and unlamented Mr. Milosevic did all these things, and finally, so the narrative goes, Europe and the United States or the NATO or whatever got its act together and dealt with it. That, there's, a, again, there's, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of you wouldn't agree with that account, but th that account is defensible. But that account is also completely out of date. We could as well be talking about the Pleistocene because what is actually happening now is that Iraq had me the, the intervention in Iraq and precisely the use of humanitarian justifications now means that in the eyes of most of the world, I think it is fair to say that, humanitarian intervention now simply seems like a flag of convenience for American imperial action. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. I want to start by trying to confine the class of events that we are discussing here today uh, by identifying three types of intervention that are often conflated with humanitarian intervention but I think shouldn't be. And that will help us clarify uh, what it is that we're actually trying to get at uh, and debate. Uh, and I think there are, there are three arguments, particularly in this day and age, and David mentioned this at the very end of his remarks, 
that, uh, that are being snuck in as humanitarian intervention, and they, and they really aren't. And I think it, it makes it more difficult for us to debate the issue clearly. And those three are first, the idea that in today's world, the post-911 world, we have to worry about failed or failing states because they were ter will turn into uh, reservoirs for terrorists, places that will eventually come to threaten our security. Uh, I think that that is an argument that is, in some limited number of cases, legitimate, Afghanistan probably being the most clear case, but that that is more the exception than the rule, and that when we do see a clear link between a regime that violates human rights, a state that is failing, and the organization of groups that might want to harm Americans here or abroad, then that's not a question of humanitarian intervention. That's just a question of going after uh, uh, groups or non-state actors that wish us harm. That's not what we're talking about today. Second is the effort to argue that there are cases of countries that in and of themselves do not threaten American interests, but because of the domino theory, and I'll use the word that Paul Kennedy used, pivotal states, they will lead to regional instabilities that will come back to haunt us. Robert Kaplan is another person in his article and book, The Coming Anarchy, who makes the case that if we stand by while Botswana disappears from the face of the earth, then there will be such chaos in Africa that it will wash ashore here. I think that's simply poppycock. If Botswana falls off the face of the earth because it has a high rate of HIV infection, then it will not threaten American security in any way, shape, or form. We will simply turn our backs and watch Botswana fall off the face of the earth. We may want to intervene for humanitarian reasons. I think we should, but let's not kid ourselves. This is not a security problem. It's a moral problem. Finally, and David explicitly alluded to this, we tend now to cast the war in Iraq as a humanitarian intervention because all the other reasons that we used to justify the invasion have evaporated into thin air. And it seems to me that by doing so, we give humanitarian intervention a bad name. This war was not about moral issues. It was about weapons of mass destruction. It was about uh, uh, a, a zealotry that had, I think, very little to do with the idea that we needed to liberate the Iraqi people and bring them democracy, even though now that is the main reason that we use. And I share uh, David's concern here that when we do intervene to get rid of regimes, when we do use military force for regime change, it rapidly becomes imperialistic. And if there is any country on the face of the earth that doesn't have the stuff it needs to be an empire in spirit or in constitution, it seems to me the United States is it. What, in my mind, having tried to delimit the class of events that we're talking about, what are the reasons that I would stand behind and back humanitarian intervention, defined exclusively in terms of crises in which the U.S. does not have any clear strategic interest. In my mind, there's one main reason to do it, and that is it's the right thing to do, that we have a moral obligation to prevent humanitarian emergency, genocide, famine, massive and widespread human suffering that extends well beyond the water's edge. 
and I would put this in terms of competing moral claims, our first moral responsibility is to our own people. We have a greater political and moral responsibility to those of us who reside in the United States than who those uh, in Botswana or other countries, but that doesn't mean we have no moral obligation. And it seems to me that if the American people are prepared to back Bush as they did for a couple of years in supporting the intervention in Iraq because Saddam Hussein is a bad guy, then certainly we ought to be able to muster enthusiasm to prevent genocide, massive killing famine of the sorts that we see now in Darfur and that we saw in Rwanda. Let me stress that I am not making a blanket case for humanitarian intervention. There are cases where our moral responsibility and the national interest will come into conflict. And when they do, I would say national interest should prevail. For example, should the United States launch the 82nd Airborne into Chechnya today or before when there were massive human rights violations and killings? My answer to that is no, for the simple reason that strategic partnership with Russia, even Putin's Russia, would trump the moral responsibility to prevent the sorts of killing and human rights violations that are occurring. But when there is a moral obligation that does not conflict with our national interest, it seems to me we ought to go. Two other quick justifications for humanitarian intervention that go beyond the realm of the moral. One is I think in an incremental way we contribute to a rule-based international order that in the end is more conducive to American interest than one in which we are motivated solely by material concerns. And that life inside the nation state has been pacified because human beings have been granted material satisfaction and dignity through democracy. If we enforce an international system in which all human beings and the governments that have a responsibility for them are accorded material security and dignity, then I think we're making an investment in a world that does not play by the rules of the balance of power and pure material interest. Finally, I think we help America's image abroad. And God only knows we could use some help on that front today. If you look at the Pew Opinion polls, we got a good boost through the tsunami assistance. If you look at earthquake diplomacy, Greek, Turkey, India, Pakistan, it matters. And so if the U.S. deploys forces, expends blood and treasure, when it doesn't have the national interest on the line, it seems to me it's an investment in our image abroad and in the legitimacy of American leadership. Final set of remarks. What are the outlines of a policy of humanitarian intervention? When is this emergency taking place? How do we know it? I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how many people have to die before we should say it's time for America to act. In general, I think we know it when we see it. And that when we see it, we ought to try to get an intervention together to prevent it. In many cases, it won't require and should not require military force. In some cases, it will. And I would always, in the context of these interventions, keep in mind the need for, to keep our commitments and the nature of the emergency in uh, proportion. And I would also stress that if you look at past interventions, they generally have gone well. And I'll simply cite the RAND report, which is, I think, a very useful study of nation building since World War II. 
They cite 11 out of the 16 major nation-building humanitarian relief efforts as successful. Not completely successful, not without some downsides, but they generally have gotten to end point to which they were intended. The second policy advice I would give to our politicians is speak the truth. Because I think we live in a strange world today in which interventions that are carried out for strategic reasons are justified on humanitarian grounds, Iraq being one, Kosovo being another. And that confuses the debate. And in my mind, both of those interventions were not about human rights. They were about strategic interests. But our focus groups indicated that if we call them human rights interventions, we'll get more support. On the other hand, the human rights crowd is increasingly relying on the argument that this is about strategic interests, about failed states, about pivotal states, that we will be awash with trouble if we don't intervene. And again, I think it's a false argument. We ought to base our claims to humanitarian intervention on a moral ground if that's why we're doing it. To portray it as an investment in some type of strategic goal seems to me simply to cloud the debate. Finally, in terms of concrete policy uh, uh, agenda, I would say let's develop the capacities for earlier intervention, for more uh, assessment of places where crises are likely to occur. I think ICG, the International Crisis Group, has done a great job of pulling together a team that does that, that gives us information about places where we may be able to act early and prevent the sorts of crises that we've seen in Darfur or Rwanda. More investment in low-intensity types of, of intervention forces, in particular police and gendarmes that can provide security. More capacities at the UN to deal with this. And I think the uh, report, the responsibility, uh, the duty to protect is useful in this respect. And finally, if, in fact, the United States is not going to be able to be the provider of last resort, which I don't think we will be, let's try to increase the capacities of regional organizations, NATO, the EU, the Organization of African States, to be better able to carry out the sorts of intervention that I think our moral duties require us to undertake. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks uh, to Cato for uh, hosting this uh, seminar, and I'm glad that uh, already from the first two presentations we have broken the traditional mold for these types of debates in Washington, which is uh, initially uh, someone will come to talk about uh, how uh, American values must shape our policy, and then usually the realist, and I assume I was the uh, designated realist, is supposed to come up here and talk about interests, and usually uh, refer to uh, Walter Lippmann's famous maxim about we need to make sure that our uh, commitments and our resources are in balance and we need to ensure that we're not going to be draining uh, away uh, our resources and capacity to act. And then usually, if not uh, from the panel, someone from the audience at the end will say, but we can reconcile all of this together. We can, Our values and our interests can merge and we can 
usually, and, and I've grown even more suspicious in recent years about when we start to have these various adjectival formulations about well, we can be realistic uh, interventionists, we can be uh, liberal realists, we can uh, be uh, effective Wilsonians, and whenever I see any of these adjectives put together, uh, I find that, uh, well, it's great for an Inside the Beltway seminar, uh, and then you find out that it doesn't really have any practical application in the world of policy. So I'm glad that we're not uh, so far moving in that direction. Chris, please don't disappoint us afterwards uh, by coming up with a new formulation. The invitation that was sent out I thought was quite interesting for the list of cases uh, which were mentioned, but also for the ones that were not. Because if we look at uh, events over the last 15 years, we find that uh, when there have been interventions uh, that uh, have taken place, we find that usually one of two motivations to get people to go. One is that of guilt, put images up on the television screens, uh, that people see and then they say, well, we need to do something about it. Uh, there's been the bait and switch, which, and I think uh, Charlie uh, pointed this out effectively, the failing states, this is really a security interest. Uh, if we don't uh, fight or intervene in a far-off country, then in the next year they're going to be on our shores and that's why we have to go now. Uh, you know, in the run-up to the Kosovo intervention, we uh, saw we were being told that there were hundreds of thousands of people being killed and, and, and then we went in the investigations afterwards and found out that uh, the figures were slightly exaggerated. And then the same thing, though, could be said for the interventions that did not take place, particularly in the 1990s, when we had a reverse approach, which was we downplay uh, events. Uh, we struggle mightily to ensure that the G word of genocide is not mentioned so that, uh, well, killings are taking place, but they're not exactly as bad uh, to trigger them as being described as genocide. And we came up, of course, uh, ethnic cleansing in the 1990s was this kind of halfway house term, uh, which sounded bad, but perhaps wouldn't trigger uh, calls for uh, an intervention. And I think, again, and as both uh, uh, David and Charlie have mentioned, that this has complicated issues, the way in which politicians have used uh, different motivations, have conflated different types of interventions together uh, to make this uh, much more uh, complicated and difficult to discuss. What I'd like to do, and uh, again, apologies if I'm not fulfilling my a staged role that I was expected, to, or hopefully that people maybe expected me to play, is to move away from some of the traditional discussions that we've had on these issues. Uh, what is a humanitarian intervention? What isn't it? When is it in the national interest? When does it occur purely on moral or uh, humanitarian grounds? Uh, and to look at two other issues uh, that I think we need to get a handle on uh, in order to have a better sense of how policy uh, needs to be formulated. Uh, and to illustrate both, I'll use uh, hopefully not too corny anecdotes as my, uh, uh, to illustrate my point. Uh, first is uh, the manpower question. When I was in college, uh, I had a roommate who had an extensive stock of uh, computer games, strategy games. Uh, one of them uh, was called Defender of the Crown. It was said in medieval England, you were a virtuous Saxon knight uh, in uh, out to uh, deal with the oppression of the Norman barons, uh, and the goal of the game was to build up your forces so that you could uh, end the oppression of the peasants and of 
the good law-abiding citizens of England because as long as the king was off fighting his crusades, the evil Normans were uh, looting the countryside. There was a glitch in the game. If in the fourth turn you went to see Robin Hood in Sherwood Forest, uh, instead of giving you 20 or 30 men-at-arms, he would give you 20,000. And suddenly, in a game where your Norman barons maybe had 50 knights and 100 men-at-arms, you suddenly had 20,000 uh, of Robin Hood's men at your disposal, and it's not uh, too difficult to predict that within several turns you found yourself master of England. We don't have that luxury in the real world. We don't have that luxury of going to Robin Hood and saying, well, we need a few extra 100,000 people to carry out interventions. It's a telling fact that we often will, and we celebrate in this town, America is the last remaining superpower. Well, the last remaining superpower today can put less people into the field than Mussolini's Italy could in, 19, in the 1930s. And fascist Italy was not the greatest of the great powers uh, of that time. But the reality is, is that boots on the ground, bayonets at your disposal. Uh, the United States has less today. Most countries have less today than their great power forebearers for a variety of reasons. We are uh, most of the industrialized countries, more leisurely societies. The military is not necessarily uh, a choice occupation. Even in those countries that have conscription, this has often been the case for the European militaries, uh, they may have large conscript militaries, but actually relatively few soldiers that can be deployed uh, for out-of-area missions. And so we can't get around this question of should we be intervening or should we not be intervening unless we're willing to tackle the manpower question, unless we're willing to tackle how many people do we have, what are we prepared to pay as a price. Uh, the United States could potentially field many more soldiers uh, if we wanted to go back to conscription, uh, if we wanted to change the incentive structure. Uh, but unless we're willing to deal with that question of how many people we're willing to put into the ground, how many are available, and under what conditions people serve, uh, it's going to be difficult because then we're, we keep talking about interventions uh, in an abstract way well, we should intervene, the Europeans should intervene. Uh, I don't know, Charlie, if you've had this experience in the Georgetown campus. Uh, you know, I'll see people saying, well, we should be doing something in Darfur. And I'll say, well, who should be doing something? And it's usually, well, someone else should be doing something. The military, the government. Not necessarily a sense of, well, should I be doing something? Should I be joining the military, or should there be uh, a force structure that I would take part in? And I think that this is a, an issue we have to get around, that we have people who want to do things but who want someone else to pay the cost and this creates these tensions where we either end up with interventions and people say there's a bait and switch we were told that someone was the next Hitler or if we didn't intervene that we would be facing them on our own home shores uh, or we then have to what policymakers often end up doing which is finding ways to get around the humanitarian question of saying well it's not as bad uh, as it seems or uh, we can't intervene at this time Second issue that we need to get around uh, is that the American people and for people in most of the advanced industrial democracies have conflicted motives. People want to genuinely do something when they see suffering in the world, famine, uh, genocide, killing, but they often balance that also about not wanting to pay much for it, not wanting to invest their own children uh, in that enterprise if it can be avoided. 
we have the paradox of what happens uh, we say we should be promoting democracy in the world. What happens when the citizens of a democracy don't want to engage in democracy promotion? You can either then say, well, we can use anti-democratic means to promote democracy and tell people that they should be doing this even if uh, uh, they don't want to undertake such tasks, or then we have to come back to how do we uh, build up constituencies uh, that, support, uh, that support these actions. And the second anecdote that I always like to cite is uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, Americans like to say that they're a good, God-fearing nation and people attend church, mosque, and synagogue on a regular basis. And usually our statistics are as a little under 50% of Americans say they attend religious services on a weekly basis. Back in one of my old incarnations when I was at Baylor University's uh, J.M. Dawson Institute, which is interested in questions of uh, church and state and human rights and democracy, one of the conferences I was talking with a sociologist who wanted to test how effectively do Americans do what they say they're going to do? And his estimates were that basically maybe about 20% of Americans go to religious services on a regular basis. Still much higher than in Europe, but that there was a gap. There was a gap of intent that most people say will say to a surveyor, I go to church or synagogue on a regular basis because that's what they intend to do, but the reality of day-to-day -day life means that most people don't end up going every week. And I think that's something we're seeing with this question of humanitarian intervention, that people want to do something, there's an intent, but it doesn't always translate into support for policies uh, which allow you to carry out effective interventions. I think we need to start thinking sometimes outside the box for some of these things. Uh, my colleague, J. Peter Pham, who was a diplomat in West Africa, particularly uh, saw some horrific things happening in places like Sierra Leone and Liberia says, you know, maybe we need to start coming to grips with uh, going to private military companies, that governments don't support interventions, conscript armies aren't necessarily the best uh, way to do it, uh, the volunteer military volunteers to defend the country but not to engage in nation building. Uh, perhaps we need to think uh, uh, of, of those types of solutions, of moving to contracts where we put people into these situations. Uh, the report that Charlie mentioned in the article for the national interest that they developed. Uh, further from that, uh, Brent Scowcroft and uh, Sandy Berger talked about, well, maybe we need to start thinking about creating volunteer teams at the State Department and government where people aren't assigned or sent out, but they can volunteer. Uh, do we need to think about an American legion uh, for the 21st century? We see that there are a number of people who would be willing to serve uh, in a milita U.S. military if it brought citizenship to them and their families? Do we want to start thinking in those uh, directions, that uh, for humanitarian interventions, uh, we think about these outside-the-box solutions? I don't know what the optimal mix would be, but I think that the old uh, attempts of saying, well, we can reconcile American values and American interests and we can be realist interventionists uh, isn't working. Uh, it produces a certain degree of cynicism uh, about these uh, types of interventions. Uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, for the future, we need to be reaching back into the past. And, and perhaps uh, for the 21st century, we need an updated version of the Knights of Malta or one of these other international hospitaller orders of people who will go out uh, and do this type of work. But I think continuing to try to say we can merge our interests and values together and come up with a happy solution uh, isn't working, and the backlash that we're seeing now uh, about Iraq and why we're not seeing intervention in a place like Darfur 
I think, points to uh, the need to think outside the box on these issues. Thank you. Thanks to uh, David and Charlie and Nick for uh, helping me decide which way I was going to go with my remarks. Because <laughs> uh, I, I have to say, I had a lot more material prepared than I uh, could possibly get to, and, and um, it's helped me to focus uh, a little bit. So what I want to do is just first, kind of for, for the libertarians in the crowd, kind of remind us all why it is that we're generally skeptical about military force, and for those of you who are not libertarians, to introduce the concept for the first time. Um, libertarian attitudes towards military action, the use of force derived from, the, from our inherent skepticism about the efficacy of state action, combined with fears that uh, state power mobilized for foreign policy for external threats can just as easily be directed uh, to stifle liberty here at home. And, <clears throat> you know, there are so many uh, instances of this. Uh, one of my personal favorite quotes is from James Madison. He said that, of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. No nation, Madison said, could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. What we're talking about today is not continual warfare, but as David, I think, has pointed out elsewhere, uh, it is, there is this possibility of an endless string of uh, altruistic interventions if we do not fix upon some criteria for separating when we must go, when we should go, and when we should stay out. So what I'm hoping to do today is to toss out a few ideas, really, about where should we, uh, how, how should we deal with the notion of intervention uh, we've already talked at some length, and I'm grateful again to David and Charlie and Nick for, for, for talking about this curious blend of interests and values and values and interests, and when you intervene in the interest of interest, but you say you're doing so for values, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a fascinating discussion. I think they've all really nailed it. Um, and yet, uh, there is this tension uh, between leaning towards intervention. This was a quote that, uh, that David, uh, in an interview a few years ago, attributed to, to Robert Kagan. He says, Kagan's not necessarily for going to war, but I think our presumption should be to lean toward intervention, not away from it. And David uh, explained that the, in many respects, the human rights movement seems to be leaning in this direction. He and I share the presumption that the, the, it should be precisely the opposite. Should we, we should be leaning against intervention. Um, the problem, however, is that there is no philosophical understanding and there is no internationally understood framework for when intervention is legitimate and, and not. Um, and um, I've done some work last year kind of studying the UN reform movement and the failure to reach some very, very broad consensus on this. And, and Kofi Annan frankly admitted that there's just a tremendous amount of disagreement among the states in terms of what states and when have, do they have the right to intervene milita <coughs> militarily, preemptively, etc. So, and there has been, partly because of the UN's confusion at the UN and, and some failure to deal with, uh, with uh, certain issues, one of which was Kosovo, of course. The UN did not take action in Kosovo, and the Clinton administration uh, uh, essentially went around uh, the UN Security Council by appealing to NATO. Um, there's this new 
uh, impulse to forum shop. This is the word they use, forum shop. Find that international institution uh, that can best confer legitimacy upon a particular intervention. Well, I am concerned that this process of forum shopping, this process of, of advancing human rights under the uh, responsibility to protect, can encourage, might encourage some states to act outside of international norms, that is, that there sh should be some formal sanction by the UN Security Council or some other internationally recognized body. And in turn, states that once counted on sovereignty or some uh, uh, sense of, of uh, the inviolability of their own borders, they're going to be seeking other ways to deter uh, potential inter intervention. I think we've seen that in terms of some of the recent developments of uh, indigenous nuclear deterrence. But let's focus just in the last few minutes of my remarks on, a, on three possible options for limiting or placing some, uh, if not barriers, at least hurdles in the way of military intervention to help us test the specific instances of when we do or when we do not go. Um, after all, first of all, if we talk about an obligation uh, to respond in the, in the uh, face of, of gross human rights abuses. The United States has the capacity, objectively, has the capacity to intervene virtually anywhere in the world, but as Nick so uh, usefully pointed out, the capacity to intervene in any one place of the world does not convey the capacity to intervene everywhere all the time uh, in the world. And I think that's one of the aspects of uh, Charlie's point where he said that we have this moral obligation, it's the right thing to do, and when national security concerns do not conflict with that moral obligation, then the, the moral obligation should, should be operative. Well, the problem of not, is not of con conflicting national security and moral choices, but of, of tension between national security and moral choices. To what extent do you weaken the strength of your all-volunteer military if they are uh, deployed in a, um, in a very um, aggressive or, or uh, frequent way, as was the case in the 10, 12, 14 years between the end of the Cold War and 9-11. And, uh, and well, one possible model is the Powell Doctrine. That is, how do we limit, how do we choose when to intervene and, and un under what circumstances? The Powell Doctrine, more accurately, the Weinberger Doctrine, uh, called for the United States to engage in foreign military interventions only when there was broad bipartisan support for the use of force internally. The force that was deployed was supposed to have clear obtainable objective and was then to have applied massive force so it could easily overwhelm any potential adversaries. And finally, that force was expected to accomplish its goals quickly and then leave. Now, a couple things. First of all, these hurdles uh, in inherent within the Powell Doctrine were quickly interpreted by critics as, as an effort to constrain uh, civilian policymakers, and I, I think this frustration was perhaps best encapsulated, of course, by Madeleine Albright's complaint, what's the point of having this superb military you're always talking about if we can't use it? Um, I think Powell would probably say that's exactly the point. Um, but but we should recall, of course, that, that, that Powell's uh, Powell's. Uh, criticism and, and attempt to do this notwithstanding, it didn't work. Okay? The Clinton administration was able to deploy forces uh, uh, in, uh, in the 1990s where there, were no, where, where there was no clear exit strategy and where there was not overwhelming popular support. So it's not a barrier, it's simply a hurdle. And I think uh, one of the other elements that, that we've all kind of danced around is the notion of an exit strategy when the goal is nation building is particularly 
wrong-headed. In fact, again, the most uh, uh, candid people will admit that if you're really going to do nation-building right, you should never even think about leaving, or at least no time soon. Uh, I challenge anyone to make that argument to the American public, which is why they don't. They simply skip over that part. And so we read about it in books that just the four of us read and a few of you out there. Okay? Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the president will mention it in his next speech. Um, so what is – I've already touched on this. What's the mechanism for gauging public support? Well, the imperfect mechanism is Congress. Imperfect mechanism. But it's at least something, right? Uh, Congress – should, it seems to me, have some role in the formulation of foreign policy, uh, that constitution that we carry around in our pocket. It's, it's in there, right? But uh, it, it's been rather imperfect. And, of course, the model from the 1990s was the Republican Congress voted overwhelmingly to prevent uh, the sending of, uh, of peacekeepers in support of the, of the Dayton Agreement and, and, and had no effect. The Clinton administration did it anyway. Um, and the, and the answer is, well, it's partisan and it's easily dismissed as partisan. Well, I hope that we would not simply dismiss any interference or, or cooperation, whatever you want to call it, uh, simply because there's partisanship in Washington. There's not a great revelation there. Um, particularly when there is no imminent threat, particularly when we're not talking about something physically threatening the security of the United States, don't we have time, don't we have an opportunity to solicit public support to build a case that will win the support of the majority of the public? Not everyone, not everyone, not, maybe not even everyone here. But something, something so that the military in the, in the Powell Doctrine formulation can go into, into harm's way knowing that the people back home are really standing behind them. The last, the last and the third component, though, gets back again to this tension between interests and values. And, and I do believe when we talk about building capacity for intervening uh, to address humanitarian crises, we should not focus solely on U.S. capacity. U.S. has an overwhelmingly large military. We already have talked about this. But what we should be focused on is ways to build that capacity elsewhere. Charlie touched on that a little bit when he talked about other, other institutions such as NATO or the EU or the African Union. But again, there is this tension between the U.S. going out in places, and Robert Kaplan talks about this a lot in his most recent book, going out into places to build capacity, and yet even the people who are there saying we're building capacity will say in the next breath, we're never going to leave. We, we can't possibly think about leaving because you know, they just can't envision the day when this, uh, this country or police force or military that they're trying to assist will actually be capable of standing on their own. But it seems to me that that is what makes humanitarian intervention work when it works, what makes nation building work when it works, is that you have the capacity internally, domestically, that there is a domestic constituency in support of it. And what does that come back to? It comes back to interests again. That's the role I was supposed to play, so I'm, I'm playing the role that I'm you know, set for myself. Right? It comes back to interests. Virtually every human rights crisis poses a threat to neighboring states. That was the case in the Balkans. Clearly, you had have, you have the, the danger of a refugee crisis, you know, uh, refugees flowing over the borders. Uh, that's also the case with respect to Darfur. What we lack, what we lacked in, in what Europe lacked, but even more so what the African Union has lacked is the capacity. So we as Americans have to recognize that the tendency in the past to say, We'll take care of this, caused, I think, 
understandably enough, other countries to say, well, I guess we don't really need the capacity to deal with these things that on the surface may be humanitarian or human rights or values-based, but at the end of the day are interest-based. They are a threat to security. And that's, to me, it's a somewhat imperfect, I'll admit, but at least there is this way to square the circle. In that sense, I really am kind of falling into the trap there, Nick. Uh, to square the circle between values and interests. And I think when we talk about capacity, when we talk about what we, the United States, should do to build capacity, we should also be thinking, perhaps even more so, thinking about how to build this capacity elsewhere around the world to really empower other countries to take responsibility for some of these things so that not everything is falling to the U.S. military. Thank you very much. We have uh, approximately a half an hour for audience participation. Uh, I want to outline a few ground rules. Uh, please raise your hand if you have a question to direct to a panel member or to the panel generally. Wait for me to call on you. Also wait for the microphone to come around so that we can all hear your question. And then uh, along with uh, these other guidelines, uh, please, in, as in the uh, game show Jeopardy, please make sure that your participation is in the form of a question. Um, also, I'd appreciate it if uh, you would identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have. So we have about a half an hour. Yes, here in the front row. Just one second. Hello, I'm Dave Peterson, uh, Africa Program, the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, uh, one thing that I found a bit frustrating in all of the um, uh, offerings uh, today was the suggestion that humanitarian intervention is always going to be military uh, intervention. I mean, there were some suggestions that you know there uh, might be uh, some kind of uh, humanitarian aid, relief, something, but. Uh, I uh, wonder if the panel could just address when it might be appropriate to intervene in a political situation, such as Darfur or uh, any number of other uh, cases around the world, in a non-military way, uh, to provide uh, political assistance to uh, organizations, such as is now being discussed uh, in the case of Iran. Who wants to take that first? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm reminded of my friend Herb Oaken, who was Ivance's deputy in the um, in those uh, terribly useless uh, negotiations with the Bosnian Serbs during the uh, Bosnian War, he used to say, you know, diplomacy without the threat of force is like baseball without the bat. So I don't think you get around the issue of force just by saying that you know, you don't want to use it. If it's not a latent possibility, it seems to me, uh, the use of force, the use of force could be a boycott. Uh, it could be an economic warfare. It doesn't have to be literally the deployment of expeditionary soldiers. But I, I'm very skeptical of the idea that these things are as separable, first of all, as, as you present them as being. Second, I, I mean, if if we were on the receiving end of what we're proposing to do in Iran, we would call that subversion. Uh, it's just because we've decided that we're in the right that we, and that the idea is that 
we don't have, you know, that democracy. I mean, there is a kind of utopia. It seems to me there's a kind of utopian faith that this current order, like the old Frank Fukuyama, not necessarily Fukuyama Mac too, um, but uh, the old Frank Fukuyama, you know, you know, said it was finished. You know, the state we were in was the end state of human political development. Uh, you know, I consider that kind of democracy activity trying to subvert a government. Uh, it seems to me the logic of such subversion is if you can, if it doesn't work, the next step is boycott and the next step is force. I don't actually consider that progress. Anybody else? I'll just add that I, I think no one on the panel would be, could be opposed to the idea of sort of different types of intervention that are short of military force. In fact, I think we would all endorse the idea that that's certainly preferable. The earlier, the better. Uh, and there isn't that much political opposition in this country, even though you do see people uh, uh, say that we spend too much on foreign assistance, that it's a huge part of our budget when it's not. Uh, my own focus on military force, and I think the panel's charge, was to focus on the question of the intervention uh, and use of military force simply because it's the most politically controversial and the highest bar to get over politically. Okay. Next. Uh, yes, Mr. Mary, I'm back. Uh, Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm sure you all are aware that members of the U.S. military have frequently become very exasperated by this kind of discussion. And I'd like to ask any member of the panel who cares to to respond to at, at least three of those points of exasperation that I've heard from members of the uniformed services. One is that the military is probably, for all of its vast logistics capability, probably the, one of the most cost inefficient ways of distributing humanitarian uh, assistance, that in Somalia we could have airdropped assistance all over the country for a fraction of the cost of, inter, of intervening on the ground. Uh, but that the policymakers turn to the military because it's become sort of the default mechanism for doing almost anything. Second, that policymakers and people discussing humanitarian interventions often fail to distinguish between whether you're talking about a state that has failed in its duty because of, to its citizens because of inability or a state which, which is itself the problem, which raises some basic questions. Are you, go, are you deploying military force to help people, or are you doing military force to change a state, in which case there are some rather important constitutional questions that, for the most part, in the last couple of decades have been almost totally ignored whenever we have done so. And third, an issue that I think is very important to people in uniform, which is the legitimacy of the use of force and from whence that legitimacy comes. It's been noted that Congress does not like to vote for this kind of use of military power. If they don't, and where does the legitimacy come from? Just from the presidency? Would it come from the UN? We have on one occasion used NATO, uh, an organization whose treaty doesn't say a word about this kind of intervention, as the source of legitimacy for an intervention. But I hear increasingly from military friends a concern that they are being used in these enterprises without anybody thinking through very carefully whether they're the best mechanism, uh, what the, uh, the underlying points of the intervention are, and, and importantly, from whence comes the basic legitimacy for the use of the armed forces of the United States. All right. I would like to... I'll, I'll start with that. Um, Wayne, you're certainly right that, that uh, policymakers have 
turned to the military um, in large part because it's relatively easy to do. The capacity is there. It, it exists. It usually exists in close proximity to the place that you're talking about. Um, and this is simply an outgrowth of um, a, a, a massive military infrastructure that for the most part remained in place after the Cold War, some modest reductions immediately after the end of the Cold War, and uh, kind of a tendency to, to the militarization of foreign policy. I think it's a fairly, fairly well understood concept. Um, it's not necessarily cost efficient, and yet our, our military people, thankfully, are extremely adept at doing things they're not necessarily initially trained to do. They just, they just do it. Um, they follow orders. Um, I think, and I'm going to skip over to your last question, because this question of legitimacy I still think does come back to interest. I think it still does come back to threats. I think it still comes back to uh, there needs to be some criteria for differentiating between uh, and, and I don't think it's – I think David's right that it's made much worse by what's happened w with Iraq, not just the way the Iraq war has played out, but the justifications that were used for Iraq. But I think we would have had a similar problem on our hands even had we not gone into Iraq, that there is, because there is this overwhelming capacity and because there wasn't really anyone to stand in the way, um, what would be the other next intervention that the United States would say, well, we're doing this because we can and, and therefore, you know, that's there. There is no further legitimacy than that. At the end of the day, we're going to be able to do it, and we can. I, I sense your frustration, and I sense the frustration of members of the military. I think there are two ways to deal with it. One of which is to uh, to place some constraints around when the military can be deployed, to place Congress on record, as I implied earlier, uh, and um, and to try to build up capacity elsewhere, because other states, other countries do have interests that are threatened and they should be empowered and encouraged to take action when those interests are, are threatened. Anybody else? All right, next question. Juliana. Thank you. Juliana Pilan with the Institute of World Politics. This has been a typically very, very fine uh, set of ideas and a wonderful debate worthy of the Cato Institute, and thank you very much. Um, my concern is that uh, there has been an emphasis on semantics, if I may put it that way, not necessarily in a derogatory way. Semantics, you know, values, interests, interests come first, where do values fit in? One of the problems that, that I would like for you, any of you, to address is how do we, how does the United States government, to be more precise, determine and assuming it can determine, how does it um, publicize, if you will, or market, not a great word, its findings to the rest of the world when it comes to assessing what its interests are and what the interests of, of others may be. Kosovo, for example, may not have been in our interest to, to, to intervene. What, in what sense was it other, the interests of other countries? Moreover, where do values and interests coalesce? In what sense do, and you have touched on that to some extent, sometimes it is in our interest to pursue certain values because of goodwill and so forth. But from a, from a research perspective, it is not clear to me that the United States is doing any sort of comprehensive analysis of any of these issues. I hope to be wrong, please. Well, I mean, 
part of that is linked to the fact that every time one of these occurs, we always treat it as if it's a unique case that will never happen again. Uh, and uh, so even with all of the interventions that we've had in the 1990s, the idea that there was going to be, and this somewhat goes back to Wayne's point as well, that there was going to be constant deployments and, and we would think we were beginning to figure out uh, what the criteria would be, but every time another one happens, it seems that we go back to the drawing board and, and, and treat it as if, oh my God, we've never done one of these before and now we need to uh, figure out what the mission is and what the values are and how do we define the interests. I, I think part of the problem lies in that, and this is a primarily a political issue, is that there is a gap between how we discuss these issues inside the Beltway, among policymakers, among people who sit in panels, and how it is said and debated in, uh, uh, you know, cities, towns, villages across the United States. I guess we don't have villages, so uh, it's maybe not the best <laughs> use of, of that term. <clears throat> Congress, I think, reflects this in that you have members of Congress whose staffs are plugged into inside the Beltway debates and, and really want to be going out, and members of Congress who go back to districts and say, why is my son or daughter uh, being sent uh, on a mission? And uh, some of this comes back to as long as we've sort of upheld the Second World War as the good war or the American Revolution as the good war, uh, where there was very clear threats, then a lot of these conflicts which are murky, uh, where there's not often a clear good, good guy and a bad guy, it, it, it's difficult to, to convey uh, these things. I think that Americans still haven't gotten uh, a handle around whether or not we want to engage in neo-trusteeship. I reread the Charter of the League of Nations a, a few weeks ago, you know, and all that discussion about trusteeship in different parts of the world that need help with self-government. You know, Wilson couldn't get the League Charter <laughs> passed in the Senate. Americans didn't quite want to uh, engage in that, and I think that we have a real dissonance here where, uh, you know, with the head or the, the the center says we should be engaged in these activities. Uh, the heart isn't completely on board, uh, and that dissonance is there. It's reflected then in the military because the military obeys orders. It's harder to get civilian agencies to do this. This was the Scowcroft uh, Burger point, uh, or at least they were hoping that they could get these volunteer teams in the State Department and elsewhere to do a lot of this reconstruction work. Can't say that there seems to be a lot of interest for people to sign up to do this. Uh, and then when there are security issues uh, tied to it as well. Finally, I mean, one of the last things, too, just about since you brought up the Kosovo issue, one of the things I find fascinating is we thought that the Kosovo intervention was going to raise our profile in the Muslim world. And then all of a sudden uh, we have all of these, uh, we read the diatribes even before 9-11, and, and we go back and we say, well, what about Kosovo? What about Bosnia? We intervened there. There was no interest. This was to help... Uh, the Muslim Ummah and why doesn't the U.S. get credit for it and, and people in other parts of the world say, well, we don't care about what you did in Kosovo uh, or Bosnia. We care about, you know, issues that are of importance to us. So I think that, again, was also a case where uh, we hope that Kosovo was supposed to bring these dividends in the greater Muslim world that uh, don't appear to have paid off. Okay. Yeah, just uh, two quick points. One is that I, I think we are focused as a country now a lot on the PR side of this and Karen Hughes is flying around and I don't think that that's a complete waste of time but it's pretty close <laughs> <laughs> and that this is you know the, the, the problem here is policy it's not that we're not getting our message out and the second comment is 
I alluded to this briefly in, the, in our discussion about uh, is this humanitarian, is this strategic, that I can remember no uh, time in my adult life, and I wasn't old enough during Vietnam to, to be able to reflect on this, but when our strategic debate, our public discourse, is as confused and muddled as it is today. Uh, and when, when we turn on the, the TV and we hear that the insurgency is on its last throes and that everything is fine and the next day the, the mosque blows up in Samara, uh, we're justifiably confused. Uh, but I think that the quality of public discourse in this country today on foreign affairs is atrocious. And somehow we need to reclaim that. And, and it's not just the, the White House that's at fault here. I mean, the, the Democrats simply uh, do not have an oar in the water. There is no effective opposition voice on the fundamental issues of the day. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a deeply serious problem. Can, can I pick up, uh, going back to the, the question of interest, um, <clears throat> the, the argument that uh, Robert Kagan and William Crystal put forward in arguing for benevolent hegemony was very explicitly that benevolent hegemony, that is, not interest-based. Because the United States was acting not in our interests, therefore it would be accepted as legitimate, getting back to the legitimacy question, uh, in ways that other great powers uh, were not. I never found that argument to be compelling, and I think if you went to the American public, again, if, if American public was reading these kind of essays, and they were saying, wait a minute, we're engaging these places when we have no national interest? It was not credible to the world at large, but it wouldn't have been credible to the American public either. So there is a balancing act. You cannot make the case for benevolent hegemony strictly on the basis of no interest at all. There needs to be some consideration of interest. And, and once, you, once, you inc once you introduce that, it is true, getting back to Charlie's point, is that there are going to be some interventions where there are no interests at stake, and that's what we're really talking about today. Okay. Yes, in the back on the left side. Yes. Good afternoon. My name is Luis Garzon. I am from the Office of uh, External Relations at the Atlantic Council of the United States. Uh, my question deals with Darfur. Uh, given the strategic relationship with China and China's deep investment in Sudan with regards to oil, do you think that uh, American intervention is uh, something that will be viable for the future? Will be what? I'm sorry? Viable. Do you viable. think that interest and uh, uh, moral obligation will coalesce in this situation? Well, uh, viable, the answer is sort of twofold. Militarily, of course, it's perfectly viable if you're willing to commit the resources needed for it. I mean, Darfur, of course, is the size of France, so you, you better commit a lot of resources if you're going to do that. I don't think that, I, I mean, uh, there have been a number of questions, including the gentleman who referred to the military's confusions uh, or dis dissatisfaction with this kind of conversation. I don't think we've yet decided what we mean by an intervention in Darfur. That is to say, uh, th this is a perfect example, it seems to be, where the implications of such a, an, uh, an intervention are not being addressed honestly by the people proposing it. Because the, the reality is that to intervene in Darfur is, at the very least, to create an autonomous entity, a protectorate a la Kosovo, and more likely 
to cause a complete collapse of the Sudanese system uh, in which you're talking about regime change. Uh, th those are the real implications of an intervention in Darfur. When you talk about the, my own personal view for what it's worth is it would be a calamity if the United States intervened in Darfur, and I bring that back to Iraq, which is that the, the last thing this world needs is another Christian army deploying in another Muslim country. This really, I mean, I'm sorry, but that would be, the only way I can make it work in my head is I don't know if the Turks would do it. But uh, that's probably that's not very likely to happen. It seems to me I come back to the points I think Charlie made in, uh, about regional organizations. I mean, this this might conceivably work if the African Union decides it's a priority and if we're willing to underwrite some of the costs of such a deployment. Otherwise, frankly, I don't think it's going to happen. But if it happens, I think it'll be a disaster. Anybody else? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting. Uh, essay in this week's New Republic that touches on the question of uh, Darfur. It touches on the efforts of a private foundation to raise money uh, for uh, equipment for the African Union. But I found very interesting. There was a paragraph in there where it says, you know, the, it started off that they wanted this group wanted to buy a Predator drone, so they went to to the to the company and said, how much does it cost? And they were were going back and forth. Then there was a paragraph that I and I thought it was interesting that the, that the writer doesn't take it any further, where they said. Well, then they wanted to look at providing security at the refugee camp. So maybe a more limited intervention, not the kind of, well, let's create a protectorate and, and affecting the, the, the structure of the Sudanese state, but let's just sort of protect these enclaves. And they said they went to private military companies. They had bids. Companies said, we can deploy people. We're not concerned about, uh, you know, if the Sudanese government likes it or doesn't like it. We can have people on the ground. And then it just simply says, but then we, we decided not to go with this option, with no explanation about... So, you know, and, and the implication was, well, that somehow it would be maybe not legitimate. It had to be uniformed military of a sovereign state to provide security. And if the sovereign state isn't going to deploy its military forces, then there was no other option. And so I think, again, coming to grips with that question, why, you know, we had the example of Sierra Leone where private military companies did a much better, they, they created stability for an election. Then they just, some people, I guess, said that this is unsavory to have private military companies doing this. It needs to be sovereign states deploying poorly trained conscript armies uh, who loot and rampage. But that somehow is more moral and more legitimate. And so, I mean, the, the question that was left at the end of that article is the implication being, well, now they're just simply going to raise money to provide equipment to the African Union forces. But I don't know that that necessarily will provide the, if the goal was to ensure that refugees can live in camps without worrying about being attacked by militias, then why did they not go with that option if there was a company, companies ready to go and were willing to do it? And coming back to Wayne's point, uh, we know from the statistics that the PMCs are cost effective. They're about 20% of the cost of sending some of the uh, you know uniform uh, official military. So I think if we're not willing to come to grips with that question as well, that interventions only have to be, you know, it has to be the conscript military, the volunteer military, and we're not seeing that there's any role for uh, the private military, then we end up with this case of, well, then we simply let people starve or be killed, and we wash our hands and say how terrible it is that, you know, Americans are not more moral people because they're not going to send their sons and daughters to Darfur. 
when you had an, another option that I guess people didn't like because it doesn't fit their preconceived notions of what an intervention should be. And that also comes back to the question of why are we always looking at the official military as the, as the only route for humanitarian intervention. I just want to record, I'm, I'm not going to get into this argument, I'm completely of the view that it's completely illegitimate to use PMCs because I think the issue of legitimacy, I think the mercenaries in question, and the word is mercenaries, uh, are tend to be white soldiers from, you know, many of whom, at least of the senior officer ranks, have served in uh, imperial or colonial forces. If you look even at the PMCs in, um, in Iraq, in my experience there, a huge number of them are South African veterans of the pre-apartheid, of the apartheid state's army. I, I think it would be grotesque and immoral to, to deploy uh, PMCs in Africa at this point in the history of the world. Sorry. I want to uh, thank both David and Nick for giving the Cato Institute an idea for another policy forum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes, over here. Thank you. My name is Thabit El-Bardisi with ATN Production. I would like to go back to two issues, please. One of the democracy and uh, back to the idea that even in a democratic society like the United States, maybe the people don't want to intervene. So how are uh, we exporting democracy to other countries? And how about democracy in the world in general when the Security Council has five countries only deciding the affairs of the world? And uh, would like to see about intervention in Iran and uh, in the Sudan, how will that affect the uh, the whole world at peace if it happens? Okay. Take I'll take a, a quick uh, stab at it. Uh, first, I think that the, as I said in my initial comments, that I would exclude from the discussion of humanitarian intervention, the notion of regime change to promote democracy. I think it's a, uh, it is a slippery slope toward imperialism. And in general, those countries that have intervened in the past to establish a new type of regime end up with a political outcome that is far distant from what they originally intended. And I think we can look at the U.S. in Iraq, the Soviets in Afghanistan, the U.S. in Vietnam, the Israelis, Israelis in Lebanon, to generally find out that it doesn't work, unless you're prepared to park there with a half a million troops for a decade or two, which uh, I think is, is simply not the case in, in today's world. In terms of, of you know, the legitimacy of the sorts of interventions that we're talking about, it, it's a complicated issue in that it, it, I, for example, tend to see the Iraq War as perhaps legal, given previous UN resolutions, but illegitimate. The Kosovo intervention was illegal, but legitimate. How does one come to that conclusion? Uh, a kind of deep-seated sense of, of uh, does the court of, of world opinion support this? Has a regional organization approved it, even though the UN Security Council did not? In today's world in which you have great powers that have, don't have similar pr strategic perspectives, I think that kind of laying on of hands of a certain group of countries and getting the blessings and the 
and the efforts of a regional organization is about as good as we're going to get. I'll just make one. I, I made a kind of uh, veiled reference or just an offhanded reference to uh, to this notion of forum shopping, so now I'll, I'll, I'll go into it in a little bit more detail. I am troubled by the the, uh, the belief that institutions, regional institutions, other multilateral institutions, not even and, and you know not necessarily the UN Security Council, um, are are capable of conferring legitimacy on something. It's like like the good housekeeping seal of approval kind of thing. Um, and and I'll just cite two hypothetical examples. There are there are multinational institutions that that systematically exclude the United States, and it's not so inconceivable in my mind that that Russia someday could appeal to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to sanction intervention in Ukraine or Georgia or Belarus, uh, or even worse, or, or even more dramatic, uh, uh, Beijing could appeal to ASEAN uh, sanctioning an intervention in Taiwan, re-annexation of Taiwan. Um, that is not – now, Charlie also, to his credit, said that the, the court of public opinion, global public opinion, also matters. And it is true, of course, that internationally there was more support for the intervention in Kosovo than there was for the intervention in Iraq. But uh, I think we need both. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we are, we are lacking uh, – it, it, and, and legitimacy really still does derive from, from interest, not from institutions. And, and that's what I think we need to be focused on. I think we also have to look at the whole question of the tra trajectory of an intervention because we often talk about this as if these are fixed position snapshots. I mean, if you look uh, at the Somalia intervention on Bush the Elder, started off with a great deal of support, and then as months went by and people said, are we delivering food or are we, uh, are we uh, engaged in nation building, the trajectory changed. Uh, I think that, you know, we have to get a handle on the fact that no Estimates about cost and length that either party or either president over the last 10 years have done have ever been accurate up front of true accounting of what the costs will be. Okay. Bosnia, our troops will be home by Thanksgiving of, to, of 96. Uh, the Iraq war will pay for itself. All, and that, I think, of, comes back to this question then of, of why we have this increasing uh, hesitancy among the American populace, and then it feeds into an inside-the-beltway approach of, well, we need to do bait-and-switch. Every intervention is now bait-and-switch of, well, we need to minimize the costs, or we need to bump up the threat, or we need to make it worse than it is because we're now locked into a cycle that we don't seem to be able to break where uh, we don't think that we'll get democratic legitimacy at home for an intervention whether it's humanitarian, whether it's interest-based, or some mix of the two. Uh, and so then it feeds into, uh, well, we can't be honest about the costs, and then it then sets you up, I'm sure, that uh, for whatever the next set of interventions will be, or, or lack of interventions. And this comes back to Darfur, where we downplay it. It must not be as bad. African solution for African problems, the AU can handle it. Either way, I think we're, we're entering into a period where we don't have a very clear and uh, honest accounting of, of interventions, and, and then it raises the question about, uh, in a democracy, how do you engage in interventions if uh, we're not going to be open about what the costs and benefits and risks are? Unfortunately, the time allotted for our forum has come to an end. We do have a reception beginning immediately uh, following upstairs, and you're all welcome to attend that. Our speakers will be up there, and perhaps you can buttonhole them to uh, continue the discussion. Please join me in uh, thanking our panel for a very, very interesting discussion.